Hello, my name is Randy Sheckman. I'm at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. This is the second of three lectures on the theme of how cells export proteins. In my first lecture, I described the history of this subject and how the pioneers of cell biology were able to understand the structure of membranes and how membranes within eukaryotic cells relate to one another and convey protein molecules that are encapsulated for export outside of the cell. In this lecture, I'm going to de describe uh, the work that started in my laboratory in the mid-1970s to try to understand the mechanism of this process in a simple eukaryotic organism, Baker's yeast. So let's drill down and see what yeast cells do to export protein molecules. First, let's have a look at a kind of a unique angle that depicts the process of membrane fusion at the very end of the process of secretion and growth of the bud surrounding a yeast cell. So this is an image taken through a plane of the plasma membrane bilayer. The cell is frozen, and, this, and, and then a basically a small hammer is used to crack the cell, and a split uh, is obtained right through the middle of the bilayer. And this very special image shows a bulge. You see this bulge on the outside of the yeast cell. This is the bud portion of the cell that I talked about last time, where cells are growing and exporting protein molecules. And then Enriched within this bulge, or the cell bud, you see small dimples, depressions, little craters in the membrane that likely depict the nascent membrane fusion events where a secretory granule has just happened to fuse with the plasma membrane. And what you can see is in the depression, in the dimple, uh, we are likely imaging the molecules that have, were encapsulated within these vesicles, but which are now being shipped outside of the cell. So there's a very special image that shows that these events of membrane fusion are likely restricted to the bud portion of a dividing cell. So I told you at the end of my last lecture that uh, this process, we believe, in yeast cells, would be responsible not only for secretion, but also that these little nascent fusion events would step by step in an iterative process allow the membrane that surrounds the bud to grow, to enlarge. And therefore, if this process of fusion were intimately linked to the growth of the cell, it would be essential uh, for the genes responsible for this pathway to be there for the cell to grow. In other words, if these genes were crippled by mutation, by a chemical mutation, the cell would die. Well, in 1976, uh, 1977, I had the great fortune, good fortune, to have a brilliant first-year graduate student join my lab by the name of Peter Novick. Here is Peter uh, in the laboratory, uh, busy pipetting away. Note uh, this is a typical image from the 1970s. We all had long hair back then. I, had, I too, had long hair. Peter is now gone on to a very successful career of his own, continuing to study this process in yeast. 
He is now, as fate would have it, the George Pilati Chair of Cell Biology at the University of California at San Diego. So Peter and I uh, devised a procedure to isolate temperature-sensitive lethal mutations of yeast, specifically focusing on those that cause secreted proteins to accumulate inside of the cell. Now, we were doing this, of course, in the context of uh, the University of California, Berkeley, the birthplace of the free speech movement and the home of student protest. And so, of course, here we were in uh, the 1970s proposing to kill living organisms. And naturally, this engendered a certain amount of criticism, indeed, even protest against our work. Here you see one such protest. End the torture in the labs. Yeast have feelings, too. We had to work hard to convince the experimental subjects committee at Berkeley that yeast are not sentient beings. They approved our work, and we have since killed trillions of yeast cells with no evidence of any torture in the labs. Well, uh, in 1978, after Peter obtained the first such temperature-sensitive lethal mutation that caused secretory proteins to accumulate inside the cell, just by chance, George Pilati, who I described in detail in my last lecture, uh, visited UC Berkeley for two honorific lectures, and I had the pleasure of telling him about our effort. But more importantly, Peter joined a group of other graduate students to organize a dinner that evening. It was May of 1978. And at the dinner, he was able to tell Dr. Pilati about his work and the new evidence that he had of a mutation that blocks secretion. And Pilati naturally was quite interested and suggested that Peter have a closer look by thin section electron microscopy, the technique that I told you about last time that Pilati used to such great effect in understanding the organization of eukaryotic cells. We very quickly processed this first secretion mutant for electron microscopy, and one of the great memories of my career came when, in the summer of 1978, Peter, in the basement of our uh, biochemistry building, called me excitedly down to the electron microscope to examine images such as you see here. In contrast to the image that I showed at the end of my last lecture, where one sees just a few small vesicles in the bud portion of the dividing cell, in this mutant, which we called SEC1, short for secretion defective mutant number one, the cell continues to make mature secretory vesicles, but instead of the few in a bud portion of the cell, the cell now fills its entire cytoplasmic volume with thousands of such vesicles. They have nowhere to go because this gene, the SEC1 gene, encodes a protein that is required for the granule to be attached, to become attached to the plasma membrane of the cell. And in the absence of that gene, in the absence of that functional protein, the vesicle has nowhere to go, so it continues to be made to fill the entire cytoplasmic volume. We now know that this gene is evolutionarily conserved. It is present in all eukaryotic cells, wherever a vesicle has to dock and fuse with a target membrane. In fact, we even know in the brain, in the nerve terminal, as I described in my last lecture, that the synaptic vesicles responsible for fusion and secretion of neurotransmitters 
rely crucially on a neuronal equivalent of the SEC1 gene product to organize the fusion of a synaptic vesicle with the presynaptic membrane. So a billion years of evolution and this pathway which was which evolved in microorganisms has been passed on over the eons to be used in molecular terms in very similar ways by, um, by human beings. Well, this was, of course, a very exciting event to, dis- to see this first secretion mutant. We knew, on the basis of how we had discovered this mutation, that there must be many more genes to be found. And so Peter devised a, another really a simple and elegant way to isolate more such mutations. He observed in the light microscope that this mutant, SEC1, when the cells are warmed to 37 degrees centigrade, continue to make these vesicles. Indeed, they continue to make all of their macromolecules, but they don't get any bigger. They don't enlarge. They must be making more mass, probably squeezing out water, and then they probably become uh, more dense, more, uh, more compact, more material within a confined volume. Indeed, he did the following experiment, which illustrated how that property of these cells. He took uh, a mixture of 99% wild-type yeast cells and 1% SEC1 mutant cells, and he mixed these two, and he incubated the mixture at 37 degrees centigrade, and he applied the sample to the top of a tube that forms a gradient that would allow cells to be separated according to their buoyant density. And he found conditions that allowed all of the normal secretion normal cells to be, ke- to be retained at the top of this tube at a low buoyant density, whereas all of the SEC1 mutant cells having a higher buoyant density sedimented to form a pellet at the bottom of the tube. So he could affect a complete separation of these two populations of cells. This is a biochemist's idea of how to select mutants. And so what we did was we took a yeast culture, we exposed it to chemical mutagen, uh, grew, grew the cells for a while, incubated the cells at a, at a restrictive growth temperature, repeated this centrifugation step, punctured a hole in the bottom of the tube, and collected the densest 1% of cells, plated them out on petri plates, and looked among those cells for those that were temperature sensitive in their ability to form colonies. And then among those, Peter found um, several hundred more mutations that define 23 different genes, each of which is required to uh, produce a protein that is uniquely uh, important at a different point in the process of protein secretion. He found 10 genes, mutations in 10 genes, that look just like SEC1 in accumulating small vesicles. But these are different genes, which means that they are, there are at least 10 different proteins. We now know there are many more, but at least 10 different proteins that are required to take those mature vesicles and deliver them into a bud to fuse with the plasma membrane. He found two genes that appeared very different in the electron microscope. Here, for example, is one such mutant. This one is called SEC7. And in this cell, when it's warmed to a high temperature, the cell accumulates a structure, rarely seen, rarely if ever seen in a normal yeast cell, that looks just like the stack of membranes that I showed you in my last lecture, discovered in nerve cells in the 19th century, called the Golgi apparatus. Sure enough, this structure can be seen highly exaggerated in this mutant, because in this mutant, 
Proteins are manufactured, delivered to the Golgi apparatus, but because of a defect in the SEC7 gene, they can't leave the Golgi apparatus. So the Golgi continues to build up to form this enormous exaggerated structure in the cell. Now, when these cells are cooled back to room temperature, the, the mutant SEC7 protein is restored to activity, and the Golgi uh, decomposes, and the proteins that have accumulated within the structure now can be secreted to the cell surface in vesicles. Another structure that was seen in nine mutations in the original collection caused a defect in traffic of proteins out of the endoplasmic reticulum. So in this case, these mutations cause proteins to build up in the first station in this pathway. And as a result, this organelle becomes much more elaborate, highly involved in the cell. The nucleus, the membrane that surrounds the nucleus, the nuclear envelope, is distorted much wider than it is in a normal yeast cell, all because these proteins build up in the structure. And as before, when the cells are cooled back to room temperature, the mutant protein refolds and proteins can leave the ER and progress as normally through the secretory pathway. Now, this, um, after we had collected these mutants and published the work, we recognized that although we had many genes, there was one target that we were particularly interested in that seemed to evade our ability to, uh, to define mutations, and that was in the machinery that Pilate and uh, Blobel, as I described in my last lecture, uh, showed to be required for the very first step where secretory proteins move through a channel in the ER membrane. We had no such mutations, and we wondered why. And then another, as chance would have it, another brilliant graduate student by the name of Ray Deshaies joined the group. Here is Ray at a special celebration of the lab. I'll tell you about Ray's work. His wife, Linda Silvera, also a graduate student in the lab, worked on another project. And Linda Hickey, another graduate student in the lab, whose work I'll describe uh, later in this half-hour section. But let me tell you about Ray's idea and how he was able to conceive of a very special, uh, simple genetic means to identify the channel protein in the ER responsible for protein translocation from the cytoplasm. Here's the idea for Ray's selection. Really very simple one. We know that most cytoplasmic proteins that act, for instance, as enzymes, uh, remain in the cytoplasm where they have access to their chemical substrates. For example, the last step in the biosynthesis of histidine is achieved by a cytoplasmic enzyme called histidinol dehydrogenase, which takes histidinol and converts it to histidine, which is an amino acid that's used in protein biosynthesis. Now, we also know from experiments that we did in yeast and which John Beckwith and Tom Silhavi did in E. coli, that if you take the gene that encodes a cytoplasmic protein, an enzyme, and you fuse to the five prime end of that gene, the sequence for a signal peptide, a signal that would be responsible for secretion, as I described in my previous lecture, you create a hybrid protein that now, in yeast, can be uh, in a, inappropriately translocated into the lumen of the ER. In this case, 
by attaching a signal peptide to the end terminus of histonal dehydrogenase, this enzyme is now sequestered in the ER where it will no longer have access to its hydrophilic substrate, histidinol. And as a result, if this cell can't make histidine, it can't grow uh, unless histidine is provided in the growth medium. If you grow the cells on a minimal medium without histidinol, in this case, uh, without without histidine, they, they simply won't grow. Well, that is a perfect setup for a genetic selection because it allows you to expose this cell to a chemical mutagen and to look for mutations uh, that may, for example, cripple the machinery through which this fusion protein would be transported and possibly allow enough of the fusion protein to remain behind in the cytoplasm to catalyze the conversion of histidinol to histidine and thus allow the cell to grow. So, to repeat, the cell contains a fusion protein that misappropriates histidinol dehydrogenase to the lumen of the ER. You expose that cell to a chemical that causes mutations. And you look for cells that can now grow in the absence of histidine, in the presence of histidinol, by virtue of the fact that the, mut- that the mutation in the cell has crippled the machinery. Now, these mutations, of course, would kill the cell because, as I already illustrated, mutations that block secretion kill the cell. So we look for temperature-sensitive mutations that allow the mutant protein to misbehave just enough to leave some histonol dehydrogenase in the cytoplasm, but mutations that, when warmed to a fully restrictive temperature, 37 degrees, kill the mutant protein completely and prevent the cell from growing under any circumstances. That was the the crucial experiment that Deshaies did that allowed us to discover several genes, the first of which, called SEC61, encodes a membrane protein that threads through the ER bilayer 10 times, and which we now know is the channel in the ER, not only in yeast, but in all eukaryotes, through which polypeptides progress. Well, let me summarize not only that, but all of the work that I've described until now in yeast in the form of a simple cartoon that depicts the stages in the pathway through which secretory proteins progress. This is very much like what Dr. Pallotti was able to uh, demonstrate in the mid-1970s, but with the added bonus that each of these stages illustrated in this cartoon now is populated with genes that are required at each of these steps along the pathway. This pathway is evolutionarily conserved. All of the genes that I've described are found in human cells. And as a result of this discovery, it became feasible to use yeast cells as a production vehicle for the synthesis and secretion of clinically useful quantities of human proteins. And so in the early 1980s, biotech companies were able to harness yeast cells by introducing genes, such as the gene for human insulin, or the gene for the hepatitis B virus surface protein, and use yeast cells then to produce 
quantities. For instance, one-third of the world's supply of recombinant human insulin is made by secretion in yeast. Or all of the hepatitis B vaccine that's made in the world that's used for vaccination purposes is made by producing vesicles in yeast cells that house the hepatitis B virus protein, which can then stimulate the immune system. So this was a practical benefit of the basic science that we and others in my laboratory performed. But we were interested in understanding mechanism. And though we had the tools available to define the genes, by itself, the existence of these genes in the early 1980s didn't tell us what we really wanted to know, which was, how does this process work? What do these genes encode? What do the molecules, the proteomolecules encoded by these genes do to manufacture vesicles that allow cells to uh, grow and, and secrete proteins? And for this, I'm going to introduce two new observations that allowed us to make progress. The first was a closer look at this first step in the pathway performed by a wonderful postdoctoral fellow in the lab at the time by the name of Chris Kaiser, who had a closer, very much closer look by microscopy and genetics at the genes required to convey proteins between the ER and Golgi apparatus. Here's a summary of what Chris Kaiser discovered. He found that among the set of genes required for the movement of proteins between these two organelles, there are two subsets which show extensive genetic interactions among each group separately, and which in the first instance are required to produce vesicles by budding from the endoplasmic reticulum, and in the second instance to take these vesicles and to deliver them by membrane fusion to the Golgi apparatus. Now we cloned and sequenced these genes, and very interestingly, two of the genes required for the fusion of these vesicles at the Golgi apparatus turn out to be the yeast equivalents of two proteins that James Rothman and his colleagues had purified from mammalian cells that seemed to be responsible for the fusion of vesicles in the mammalian Golgi apparatus. He purified two proteins called uh, NSF and alpha-SNAP, which turn out to be the human or mammalian equivalents of the yeast genes SEC18 and SEC17. So that by the end of the 1980s, we were able to appreciate not only the evolutionary conservation of this pathway, but at the detailed molecular me mechanistic level, genes in yeast had the equivalent function to proteins obtained from mammalian cells. Now, in the final part of this lecture, I want to take a step back to tell you about a historical precedent for how you can use this kind of genetics to bootstrap an understanding of biochemical molecular mechanism. So now we're going to take a step back 20 years to a crucial landmark experiment conducted by two investigators at Caltech in 1965. Here they are. These are uh, Bob Edgar, a bacterial virus geneticist, and his young protege, a new assistant professor at Caltech by the name of William Wood. Edgar was a classic geneticist. He used the bacteriophage T4 to understand the genes that are required for the production of infectious variant particles. 
he discovered that mutations in these genes block the production of virus particles and cause infected E. coli cells to accumulate incomplete virions. But he had no idea what these gene products may do to promote the assembly of the virus. Bill Wood had come as a trained a biochemist trained in the laboratory of Paul Berg at Stanford University, so he was well-versed in biochemical analysis, and he saw the great advantage of what Edgar had done to conceive of a strategy that I'll show you now that allowed this team to develop a cell-free reaction that reproduced the production of virion particles in the test tube, employing the genes that Edgar had discovered by his genetic approach. Here's the basic experiment. One starts with bacteria that are infected with two different virus mutants, each by themselves incapable of making infectious virions. Now, if these cells had been infected with the two viruses together, genetic complementation inside of the infected cell would have allowed one defective genome to complement the other to produce infectious viruses. But if the mutant viruses were used to infect two different populations of bacteria, nothing would happen. What Wood properly recognized was that if these two different populations were broken and the cytoplasm fractions from each were mixed in the test tube, there may be a form of biochemical complementation that would allow each variant to pro provide the missing component for a completion of virus assembly in the test tube. Indeed, that is what's happened. And the data shown on the right shows a beautiful result where at the outset of the experiment, very few, if any, infectious virus particles are detected. But as the two mutant samples are incubated in the test tube together, three logs of infectious variant particles are produced during a 30 or 40 minute incubation. This is a result that warms the heart of any biochemist and provided a historical precedent that we in my laboratory could use to try to identify biochemical entities associated with defective gene products. We struggled for some years uh, to achieve such a reaction, but eventually another brilliant graduate student by the name of David Baker, who's gone on to his uh, very successful own career, uh, joined the lab. And within a very short period of time, David had devised a very simple way of breaking open yeast cells that would allow communication, vesicular communication, between the ER and Golgi apparatus to be uh, reproduced in the test tube. His work was followed uh, by the efforts of two graduate students who, who, whose work I'd like to tell you about now. The first was Linda Hickey, whose picture I, I showed you a few minutes ago. Linda was a graduate student in the lab working on a gene that we now know to be required to form vesicles that bud from the ER. And she used the system that David Baker had developed uh, to do a variation on the Wood and Edgar experiment that I just told you about. And I want to show you the data for that because it's an experiment that still warms my heart to this day. She took the following combinations of extracts of cells. The dark column shows 
a sample that was incubated with membranes that by themselves showed no transport as defined by the Baker assay, but could be restored to activity when the sample was incubated at a permissive temperature for the cell-free reaction, in this case, 15 degrees. This dark line is of cytosol taken from a SEC23 mutant, a mutant that would be defective if the cell had been incubated at 37 degrees, but would be nearly normal if the cell was incubated at a low temperature. Indeed, this cell-free reaction was quite active at the temperature 15 degrees. She also prepared cytosolic proteins from a cell that has a wild-type copy of SEC23. And similarly, this mixture of wild-type cytosol and membranes produced transport activity as measured in the Baker assay. Now, crucially, as independent samples were incubated at slightly higher temperatures from 25 to 30 degrees, which we found to be a restrictive temperature for our biochemical assay, the activity for transport with cytosol carrying the wild-type SEC23 protein was more or less intact. But importantly, the activity associated with cytosol carrying the mutant SEC23 protein was down quite markedly. And clearly, then, a temperature-sensitive traffic reaction indicated that this assay, the Baker assay, faithfully reproduced the uh, pathway that we had deduced on the basis of a genetic analysis, confirming that this was an, a functional assay that would allow us to purify these proteins. Now, this observation was further simplified by a very important contribution of another terrific graduate student by the name of Michael Rexash. Rexash observed that in the course of the cell-free reaction that Baker had devised, membranes in the lysate, specifically ER membranes in this gentle lysate, remained very large and could be sedimented to the bottom of a centrifuge tube with a very low speed centrifugation. He further observed that if these large membranes were incubated with wild-type cytosolic proteins, during the course of an incubation at 30 degrees, small vesicles formed that could not be sedimented to form a pellet at the bottom of a tube, and instead would have to be sedimented only after a very high-speed centrifugation. So a simple differential centrifugation of the sort that I described at the outset of my last lecture was sufficient to separate vesicles that bud from the ER in vitro from the ER membranes. Further, they, uh, further Rexas showed that the mutants, such as SEC23, are defective in the production of these small vesicles. Well, this then uh, allowed us to begin to fractionate all of the proteins that we knew to be required for vesicle budding, those genes that Chris Kaiser had described that are responsible for vesicle budding in vivo, turn out also to be required for vesicle budding in vitro. And as a result, we were able to discover that these genes have a unique function to assemble on the surface of the ER membrane uh, to form a, a bud 
that pinches from the ER membrane. In order to visualize this process, we developed a collaboration with one of the great morphologists in the world today, a man by the name of Lele Orchi, shown here in his office in Geneva, with whom I had the pleasure of collaborating for over 20 years on experiments of the following sort. We purified all of the proteins necessary to bud vesicles from the ER, the genes that we had already described by genetic analysis and their protein products, and we took these purified proteins and we mixed them with ER membranes. We sedimented away the ER membranes at low speed and obtained a high-speed pellet fraction. And with the guidance of uh, Lele Orchi, we were able to visualize the vesicles that formed in the test tube and were amazed to see that a uniform population of about 80 nanometer vesicles were produced in the test tube, each of which is coated by a, what appeared at least initially, to be a fuzzy electron-dense coat consisting of the proteins that we added to perform the budding reaction. Now we now know, and I'll summarize in the next two slides, that the proteins that do this assemble stepwise to produce a bud, to pinch the bud to form a vesicle, and to capture membrane and secreted proteins that are designed to be conveyed from the ER to the Golgi apparatus. So let me show you a summary slide and then a higher resolution image of how these proteins work in my last two slides of this section. First, this is a cartoon summarizing a great deal of work over a period of many years that describes how this process works. And let me just summarize it for you in, a, in just a little detail. We know that this process of budding begins with a small GTP binding protein called SAR1 that acquires GTP by interacting with a membrane protein called SEC12 where it lodges into the ER membrane to begin to deform that membrane to form a bud. We then know that two proteins in the form of a heterodimer of two SEC gene products, SEC23 and SEC24, assemble onto the dimple that's formed by SAR1 and begin to sample different membrane proteins for capture into a nascent bud. They recognize, specifically the SEC24 molecule, recognizes sequences on membrane proteins that are signals for traffic out of the ER and complexes are formed that then are clustered together through the intervention of the outer layer of this coat, the SEC31, SEC13 complex, which literally envelops the membrane uh, in the form of a scaffold to sculpt the bud and to pinch it, collecting as it does so, not only the inner layer of the coat, but also cargo molecules that are designed to be transported while excluding proteins in the ER membrane that are designed to remain behind and not to be transported. Now we now know through the work of other laboratories that have taken these proteins and, de and developed atomic resolution crystal structures, we know a great deal about how the molecules uh, of this COP2 coat cooperate uh, to form this bud. And let me summarize that in my last slide for this part. This is a lower resolution image. We now have much higher atomic resolution images. The coat consists of two layers, 
There's an inner layer of proteins consisting of the GTP binding protein SAR1 and its partners SEC23 and 24 responsible for tagging cargo molecules designed to be transported. And then an outer layer, this outer layer of two other SEC proteins, SEC13 and 31, that form a scaffold. Uh, indeed, this scaffold, as was first described by William Balch and his colleagues in La Jolla, this scaffold has the unusual ability to self-assemble into a regular polyhedron, a cube octahedral structure with squares and triangular facets that forms the kind of exoskeleton that surrounds a membrane, capturing cargo molecules for budding from the ER membrane. Well, we know a lot about these not only in yeast, but also in mammalian cells. We even know that some human genetic diseases are the result of mutations in different subunits of this COP2 code. Once again, confirming the evolutionary conservation of this pathway and emphasizing something that I feel very strongly with about and which I'll leave you with for this part, which is that the pursuit of science for its own curiosity-driven uh, thirst for understanding inevitably, when one discovers things of a fundamental nature, such as I've described, inevitably has practical application, in this case, in the biotechnology industry, and even in understanding at a fundamental level how human diseases may evolve. I'll leave you with that for this uh, part of the lecture series, and we'll start in a few minutes with my third lecture, which will describe a process that probably doesn't happen in yeast, but which also involves the capture, in this case, of RNA molecules into vesicles that may be transported within the human body and promote not only normal development, but also may be subverted uh, in human disease. Thank you.